Hi, this is Jeff Innocent, welcoming you to another episode of Smart Casual. Our special guest today is Canadian comedian Bobby Mayer. Bobby and I covered a plethora of subjects, including the dynamics of appearing on panel shows, being attacked on stage, the Canadian comedy scene, and exactly what is a Canadian comedy style. We also discussed the nuanced and clever way in which Bobby approaches the subject of mental health on stage and how he managed to troll the now ostracized provocateur Katie Hopkins. This was recorded back in the summer of 2021. It's always a pleasure to catch up with Bobby. So please enjoy this episode of Smart Casual with me, Jeff Innocent, and Bobby Mayer. I was first made aware of the significance of our guest today <laughs> by my son, Freddie, who was a precocious judge of stand-up comedy from a very early age. So <laughs> every birthday, I'd get a couple of his favorite acts to leave happy birthday messages on his phone. <laughs> now, it became a tradition that he would ask for a different comic each year. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an older dad, so I indulged him. And so he had been a fan of people like, say, Russell Howard since he was about 10. He could recite all his routines. And then as he got older, he moved on to people like Milton Jones. Uh, and, and all these comics would do this for me. And it was great. But one year, he asked me if I could get today's guest to leave a birthday message. Uh, and I remember he said, what, you actually know him? <laughs> so I was so proud of, of him for making that sort of intellectual leap um, uh, and up until then I'd only worked with our guest a couple of times but had been become a fan instantly uh, and, and as one critic described him he's a functionally ill comic who's <laughs> capable of greatness as long as you don't mind it steeped in grubby depravity so <laughs> this is the guy I let leave a message on my son's phone. I remember, but, wasn't your son like 13 at the he time? He was at that time, yes, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember you asking me about that. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, and you did it for me, man. So Yeah, but I just thought, what 13, who's letting their 13-year-old watch me? He's a guy, man. <laughs> so, hey, welcome, and that's the voice of, uh, welcome to the Smart Casual Studio, Bobby Mayer. Hello. Yes, indeed. Yeah, he was 13, man. How proud am I, am I <laughs> of having a 13-year-old that got your stuff? Yeah. Um, now, now, can I say right from the start, Bobby, uh, I only worked with you a couple of times, and then I didn't see you for ages. So I naively thought that your your sort of unique, offbeat style of stand-up comedy, which has also been described thus, a gleefully <laughs> profane, <laughs> joyously explicit comedy where the sickest images can be conjured up and the most cherished taboos broken, all for the sake of laughter. I thought quote. that maybe... Uh, though it appealed to me and my son, Freddie, and other comedians, it didn't appeal to club promoters and that you weren't actually being booked. But <laughs> on the contrary, you were away from the circuit, being extremely productive and busy with other projects like new Edinburgh Fringe show every year, all over TV programmes like Nevermind the Buzzcocks, 8 Out of 10 Cats, uh, and Virtually Famous. So, so... I want to ask you about all of that, really. Some of these TV programs, they're, they're part of a comedy career process whereby comedians build a profile, gain an audience, who will buy 
tickets to come and see, which we all want. But how are you with that experience? Okay, well, I I guess it should start where I, when I moved here, right? So I didn't. I moved here knowing nothing. I knew one person in the country, mm-hmm. and um, I was sleeping on someone's couch. And I just I had an act already because I'd done stand up in Canada for six years. So quite quickly, I was able to get work. And then in terms of the TV stuff, I guess I got lucky and a couple of producers saw me and then kind of one led to another. Mm-hmm. And I was always on the circuit, actually. We just never no, I, were at yeah, the same yeah, gigs. Yeah, yeah, but, 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 but as it happens a lot, because I'm only really a circuit comic and I tend not to do TV, I don't realize other people are off doing all these other magical things and gaining a big profile on, on TV. But what it was is I, I couldn't match you, the comedian that I work with, with these TV programs. I, I necessarily couldn't either. Like, I think... <laughs> I uh, I'm just like the right side of dirty. Like I'm dirty, but I don't actually mm-hmm. swear that much. I don't mm-hmm. say that many like filthy, like really filthy mm-hmm. things. So it kind, I guess I fit in okay with what they wanted at the time. You know, is it more edgy than dirty? I think? mean, I don't know. Whatever. All these all these words. However, I if I were to if I were to describe my own comedy, then I would have a hundred comedians whose acts I fucking hate who also use those same <laughs> words to describe them. And then they're like, "We're in the same club," and I'm like, "I don't want to be in your club, well, you please." See, see that that that's it. A lot of that stuff. Okay, you were going to Edinburgh as well, which are, uh, every year, which you can do what, where, where you can do what you like, but. A lot of that TV stuff is about being funny to order. It can be competitive. Yeah. Uh, but you're successful at that. But, but, you know, how did you fit into that? Do you find um, it competitive? Or you just naturally, you, you can adapt to that environment with your comedy? So I'm thinking about a panel show. So yeah, yeah. on a normal panel show, it's definitely competitive to speak. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, but, but let's say you didn't say anything. Eventually, you know, the host with the producer in their ear will come to you and you will get enough in mm-hmm. that in the edit, they'll okay. use what you say. Okay. I, th- I would imagine that it'll look okay. But I like to talk. So I'll just keep throwing things out there usually on those shows. They record for like three hours. And then half of the things I say aren't funny. Like that's the, the pain of it is getting a studio audience on the side of me. Mm-hmm. because my perspective is usually quite a bit different than the other comedians. Sure. So the first five or six things I say will just die. <laughs> and I just have to sit there smiling, like kind of with a glint in my eye, letting the audience know, mm-hmm. like, I'm just going to keep doing this until mm-hmm. you get on board. And I keep throwing it out, keep throwing it out. And usually by, uh, by like, they come 20, around, yeah? they come around and get on my side. And yeah, I don't, in That's terms great. of competitive, I don't feel like it's competitive. I feel mm-hmm. like it's like, a conversation at a party where everyone's on a bit okay. of coke. Okay. So it's like okay. everyone wants to talk and everyone's okay. really excited, but it doesn't necessarily feel like someone's trying to beat me. We all just okay. want to be funny. Of course. So, okay, let's go back to that beginning then, and let's hope that I've got the chronology correct. If, if you do not, you I, I mean, moved. I might not know. I might not. I don't know uh, if yeah. I know my own <laughs> I remember. I might so, just be like, oh, really? That's what I did. So I'm thinking that you moved to the UK from Canada I did. in 2011. That's true. I moved here July 2011. So that After is now... winning £10,000, is that right? Or was that dollars? <laughs> that in... was Canadian dollars, so two, okay. pa- two pounds. Um... Uh, in a stand-up show competition. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So what happened was I'd already planned to move here, actually, and I was saving up money and um, uh, couch surfing just to save money, and I was working a day job in Canada. So how long had you been doing comedy up until this point? Up until that point, six years. Okay. And... Uh, there, there's just not that much to do in Canada. You can do a few clubs. There's a few TV things a couple times a year, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of great comedians there. But when I looked at the people who were maybe uh, similar to me, but 20 years ahead, they weren't necessarily 
doing much more than I was already doing at the time. So I thought, well, it, it, I'm not going to have a great time if I stay here. So I decided to move, and then while I was preparing to move, there was a there was a comedy competition called Stand Up and Bite Me, I think, great name, on a very obscure cable channel, and um, all the pros, like all the comics who could have beat me, were like, we're too good for this. I'm not doing some competition mm -hmm. with a bunch of amateur sure. comedians. And I was like, I will definitely do a competition for $10,000. So, so how, tell me about your comedy before then, about being an open sport, about being a new act. You've been doing it for six years. So yeah, for What six was the comedy years. scene like for you at that time? Horrible. We're talking about Horrible. into the 2000s. I had five years of making absolutely no money, mm -hmm. performing six nights a week to like an average audience of like 10 people, and just honing what I do in the worst places. And like, I think I've been, within that time, I was attacked over 10 times on stage <laughs> because this anger, like I used to have quite an anger on stage that like when it was honed well, I think, I don't know, like an audience liked it and I could walk a fine line where I seemed quite angry and manic and kind of in control of it. And at the time that was true because I was quite, I was mentally ill and quite undiagnosed. So I was I had this like just crazy emotion surging through me. And then when I'd say my jokes with these insane emotions, it was quite a spectacle, I think. But if someone heckled me, I'd kind of lose control and be like, and just, I re my, my, my coping strategy with a heckler at the time was say the worst thing I could think of to them, which it, again, if it worked and it was funny, that's an amazing moment. But when it didn't work, Usually, people would try to attack me. I think I just couldn't back down if someone challenged me. I, I I lacked the ability to back down. But what actually the most brutal attack was something that had nothing to do with me. I think I was doing a show at a bar called the Fox and the Fiddle, which has now been torn down and turned into condos in Toronto. And uh, a guy, uh, I did a joke about a call center. I don't remember what the joke was. It was someone insulting call centers because I just w worked at one. It was probably a bad joke, but not that nothing nothing controversial. And a man in the audience dropped his glass, and I thought, well, that's a bit. I said, oh, I should say something clever about that, but I'm just going to keep going. I kept going. Then he started walking towards the stage, but the bathrooms were conveniently located right beside the stage. So he's probably just going to the bathroom. But he didn't go to the bathroom. He just walked on the stage and started punching me in the oh face. <laughs> and he wasn't a big guy, but when you're not expecting to be punched sure. in the face, you're just, like, stunned. So I was just kind of frozen. He's just punching me in the face. And I'm like, I'm being punched in the face. What is happening? And he hits me maybe four or five times. And then I, I turn my head so he doesn't hit my face. And then he starts punching me in the temple and the neck, which hurts a lot more. Yeah. And then I see my friend Mike, who Mike McGregor, who was like a co comedian, looked kind of like a big biker running towards me. And I think, okay, Mike's going to save me. I only have to take a few more punches. Then he hits me like four or five more times in the neck, which really hurts. And Mike pulled him off. He managed to get away before any police could get there. And I was like, it was a mystery as to why he attacked me. And then it turns out a couple weeks later, his friends were at the bar, the host, regular host of the show, was talking to his friends. Turns out the reason he attacked me was he used to work at a call center, and he did not like that I was insulting call centers. <laughs> and did you get badly hurt? You got punched a hell of a no, lot of No, just like scared okay. you know just that fear where for a couple is there weeks, a video clip of this incident? sadly no i couldn't have my jim jeffries moment yeah. there was no, <laughs> no well one it's funny because i got attacked uh fairly recently um uh, from some, some hecklers they heckled me and accused me of being racist and then they they left um and then out of nowhere they came back and attacked me because you can't see people rushing you on stage because it's it's dark out out there and i managed to fend them off and then they got pulled out. And they attacked the 
them. It was at, 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 at uh, top secret. Then they I heard this story. Marked, yes. And the police came and it turned, and then they wanted to press charges on me for assault because I defended myself. And then uh, Mark wanted to put the video out. But of course, if they had been big guys, the video would have been great. And, and, and I would have had my Jim Jeffries moment. But it doesn't look very good for a big guy <laughs> like me fending off <laughs> uh, <laughs> girls, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's so, not... um, so I didn't get hurt, fortunately. Um, but it's a, it's a shock. It's, it's sudden and unexpected. But uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's not a good. That's traumatic. There. Is that a thing you live in fear of? Not now, because I think uh, over the years I've I've lightened in my mood. And since I don't bring that kind of anger to the mm -hmm. stage anymore, uh, I don't find you okay. don't you know, if you walked in the street being an angry person, you're going to find all the other other oh, angry yeah. people. And in that same way, if I bring like a happy, fun energy onto stage, even if it's a bit manic, mm -hmm. I just find all the happy, fun people. But how did you go from nothing to, to, to even starting comedy? What, what, what was the starting point? OK, if we go back to... even farther. Um, when I was 12. I was watching a documentary about Whoopi Goldberg's comedy career. Now, I, a lot of people don't know Whoopi Goldberg was a very successful mm, character sure. comedian who did very successful one-woman shows. I knew a black woman in America doing one-woman shows yeah. and making it as a comedian and then a Hollywood. Like, it's an incredible story. And I watched this documentary about Whoopi Goldberg when I was 12, and I thought, I want to do that. Not like necessarily be a character, but I want to do stand-up comedy. And then it was just in there. And I, when I was 14, I wrote an act. I wrote like an hour show when I was 14. And where did you think you were going to perform this stuff? Was there, Did you know there was somewhere that you could go to, to perform? I think at that work? time when I was that age, I looked it up and there was, I was in a small town. I grew up in a town of like called Seaforth of like 2,000 people. There's no comedy anywhere and near where's there. Your, where's the biggest, biggest city? Biggest city actually would be nearest me would be London, Ontario. But again, no comedy scene there. Oh. Um, but you'd probably want to go to Toronto, which is about okay. two and a half hours away from where I grew okay. up. So I had write it. I wrote an act. I was very excited when I was fourteen, but then just never kind of got the gall or the. Was it Whoopi Goldberg type stuff? It was about no. Being it a was. I think it was just long. <laughs> it was long like rants that on paper I thought were funny, but then if I said them out loud, they they would they would have got nothing. Like it was just like there. It was like me trying to probably mimic like George Carlin or whatever I was watching on television. You know. The scene that you started with was it was it an open spot scene? I mean, yeah, definitely, definitely. So there were a few acts, a few a lot in Toronto. There's a lot of comedians. So that's where you were doing it in Toronto. So basically. I went to. Did you have to move to Toronto to do that, or were you traveling for two and a half so hours to do open spots? When I was 19, I uh, applied for this course at a place called Humber College. It was a comedy writing and performance course. Uh -huh. Now, what it really is is a drama program. It's no different, like you know, acting classes, sure. improv classes. There's a stand-up class, but that's actually like the least fun class because it's just an old comic named Larry Horowitz telling you how to cook coffee or not how to cook like a meal in a coffee maker. Like it was, that's genuine. Like, but I thought at the time I was a bit afraid as a like 19 year old kid from a very small town to just move to a huge city when I'd never lived in a city. So I thought, well, this is a good buffer. And I knew I'd probably drop out because it's not like I knew the degree didn't mean anything, but I thought it'll be a nice way to meet people and I can do some comedy before I have to get a job and continue doing comedy. And that's what happened. I moved there, joined the course. Within a week, I did my first set, just went to a show, and then just started doing like five sets a week. Dropped out of that eight months later, and then just kept doing stand-up. And were you doing the, the style of comedy that you're doing now? Was that, had that started then, or were you very different from how um, you are now? I sounded like Jimmy Stewart on stage. I was like, when I was, and a <laughs> lot of my jokes, I, I wrote kind of like, uh, <laughs> Uh, what's his name? American comic, one-liner comic. His name's uh, 
He's like the best one-liner comic in the world. Um, emo Phillips? Yes, Emo Phillips. So I was kind of like an Emo Phillips style. Yeah, yeah. Sounded like Jimmy Stewart. So one of my jokes was, uh, um, I, uh, I, I had a wet dream, so I bought a dream catcher. Uh, it didn't work, though. I just started having dreams about having sex with Native American women. <laughs> and that was like the... So there's like a leap of logic. There. It was like that was sure, the kind of, course, of joke I was running. Like these, these kind of concise one-liners. Were, were you being influenced by anybody? Were there people that you were watching that, that even on an unconscious level... Oh, definitely. Like Emo Phillips. Probably maybe. Emo Phillips. I probably... Yeah. I probably he was huge at that. He was huge at one time, I probably he? watched an Emo Phillips, you know, clip and then wrote that mm. joke. Like that would have been the what happened there. I don't think it was what it wasn't like one person I was trying to mimic necessarily, but I'd watch a style of joke and then because I was so new and young and didn't have that much of my own experience to talk about at the time, that I would then just try to kind of mimic the style of a joke to see if I could write a style like that comic. You know. And how old were you at this? I would have been nineteen. Oh, so very young then Mm. to be in stand-up comedy. So you were working in Toronto, learning your craft in Toronto, just honing it. Yeah. But were you also Working in Canada generally, going from into other cities because because this thing about distance, what we always hear from Canadian comics, the distance between kids. When we when British comics moan about having to go from I know, I London know. to Leeds, well, ca- Canadians love to compla- complain yeah. about that. They're like, oh well, you know, in but Canada. Is that true? Were you were you actually well, there, doing a, those, or did you just stay in Toronto? I stayed in Toronto, um, but you know, it's I would take whatever gig I could get. Yeah. You know, I was very hungry, so if there was a gig like a few hours away in Ottawa or something, or in London, Ontario, which is three hours from Toronto, I would go do that, maybe get a ride with another comic, maybe make 50 bucks. But like there wasn't I wasn't a professional comedian for a long time. Um, and I think it was because my style was like you thought, oh, I don't know if club promoters would book him. Mm-hmm. Well, before I was more honed, that, that kind of was what okay. happened. Like I do well, but I think they could sense like danger. Was uh, was the yuck yuck circuit? Going at this time, yeah, definitely. Can you yeah, talk yeah. to me about that because that's that's because like some sort of mystical circuit oh, that we God. hear about. Was it just general, generally a, a chain of comedy clubs? It's just a chain of comedy clubs ran by name ran by name a man named Mark Breslin, um, and they have a policy not dissimilar to some clubs in America where if you play our clubs, you well, it is dissimilar. They say if you play our clubs, you you are we're also your agent, and you now we now book you exclusively for clubs in those cities so you couldn't play another club oh, well, in I didn't that know city that. i didn't know that um is that a problem or? i guess so for some people it's a big problem for some people it works it depends how much they give you work and everything when i was there it worked out great for me i did some gigs for them and then i left canada mm-hmm. so do you think that um you could have achieved what you'd have achieved here if you'd stayed no in canada? okay there's not there's just not the same infrastructure mm-hmm. you know there's not a okay. not the, I don't consider it like my I think my achievement in my mind is like being good at stand up, you know, sure. Canada doesn't really have its own um, star system. So here, like there's, you know, there's hundreds of British celebrities who are only known on this one island in Canada. Most of the celebrities people know are American okay. and there's a few Canadian celebrities, but they have to be quite quintessentially Canadian in the way that like Al Murray when people don't get that Al Murray is a character, they mm-hmm. love just like the, you know, what he's actually mocking. You kind of have to be that kind of a stereotype of a Canadian okay. to be famous in a country that's mostly small towns. Um, now, obviously, you're aware of this, but during the 
90s and before your time, there was a bit of a, an invasion of Canadian yes, yes, yes. comics onto the British Wilmot, circuit. Phil uh, Nichol, Craig. Glenn Wall, Craig Campbell, Mike Wilmot, uh, Ron Vaudry, yeah, Vaudry and others. Quite a lot. Actually, there were loads. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Now, Sean, the story Sean. was that the Canadian circuit was dying and therefore acts were coming here to earn a living, like economic migrants in a way. Yes. So they came here uh, in that way, performing at clubs like Jongleurs, the Comedy Store, and, and solo shows to Edinburgh. And they made quite an impact. Um, but the standard always seemed very high, very world class. Um, are there bad Canadian stand up comedians? No, there's lots of great comedians for sure, but. The bad ones just stay there. You know what I mean? Like, like, of course, the good ones had the impetus to realize I'm very, I'm, you know, those guys are really good comedians. They're and those, so they had the impetus to leave. There's tons of terrible comedians in Canada, and there's lots of good ones. You know. Do you go back to Canada for holidays and see your I, family? Do you miss being in Canada? I d listen, if it wasn't for comedy and now my lovely wife and child on the way, I would, I would live in Canada. You know, I love Canada. I love being there. I love. Uh, the people and uh, just the vibe of uh, Canadian you see yourself, Are you Canadian? I mean, what, what aspects? I mean, because I would say that I'm very London, for example. Yeah, I, I would say I'm very... very I, English, but. Well, I, I only realized once I left Canada, yeah, I'm very Canadian. <laughs> because in, in, in England, uh, I would... I would say the difference between Canadian people and British people, and it's quite broad, but with with British people, you get to know them. And then you can joke around with them. Whereas Canadian people, you kind of joke around with them to get to know them. Okay. You joke around with strangers and it's like a, and I find that a lot more comforting. Whereas here, there's just a slight, and it's not a coldness. It's just like, uh, there's more people crammed into a smaller space. So everyone's got their guard up a bit more. And it seems like a silly question because on the surface, there's such a range of styles, but is there a, a Canadian comedy aesthetic or, or style do you think that separates it from american stand-up that's a good question i haven't thought about that give me a second Let's there's see. something see i tell you what i think and this you know i i've always thought when i've worked generally with most canadian acts is that there seems to be they seem to be understood all over the world and i've worked with these acts all over the world uh and you were just mentioning al murray who wouldn't be understood all over the world they seem to be able to play internationally and cross-culturally is that too much of a generalization no i think that's fair that's very fair there are com there are comedians that, like that that pop to mind like a guy named ron james who's very famous in canada or Derek edwards who's very famous in canada but there uh oh well De Derek edwards is very uh successful in canada I don't know if he'd be Actually, recognized walking down the street. I just thought of a bad Canadian comic, but of course I can't mention it. It would be unethical and inappropriate for me to do so. So okay. I'll mention that afterwards. Please, please let's do no, it, I Jeff. I can't do it. Please, Jeff. No, no, no. He might listen and he'll never speak Jeff. to me again. Are you friends with him? Uh, well, yeah, well, you know, I'm friends with everybody. Okay, you know, you know yeah, But yeah. I've always been impressed with the Canadian actors. But uh, what I'm saying is there are Canadian comics who are very Canadian and quintessentially okay. like their humor is very quintessentially like small town Canada. Mm -hmm. And because of that, if they came here, their act might... Okay. Not that they wouldn't figure it out. I'm sure they could figure it out. Okay. But their act necessarily might not translate immediately. Sure. But um, I think you asked about the difference between Americans and Canadians. What I've noticed, in um, at least, is Canadians generally are slightly less real and a bit more heightened and maybe, like, um, physical and maybe a bit more just, like, showy. 
Mm-hmm. Like they're putting on a show. It's like a bit more of an act. So, so could you name people that, that we could use uh, as an example of that? Would you say that, say, someone like Craig Campbell? Yes, Craig. Is, is that in that? His Glenn Wall also. Glenn or yeah. Phil Nickel. Yeah. I would say all of those guys I think are great. But I would say if you watch like an understated American comic who's just kind of themselves on stage, and I would put myself in the same category as those mm-hmm. guys, maybe we turn it up a notch. And maybe that, I guess maybe that's Canadian humor. I, I would find that's it hard to categorize. That's what I'm cate- looking for. Yeah, I've been trying to work that out. I would find it hard to categorize because I'm mm-hmm. too kind of in it. Sure. But I would say that would Whereas maybe Wilmot be reminds me of an East Coast American kind of comic, really. Yeah, he is more a very American style yeah. and very slick. Yeah. Hi, British Comedian of the Year, Jeff Innocent here. I just want to take some time out to tell you about my comedy course. It usually runs as six weekly three-hour sessions on Sunday afternoons from 1 to 4 p.m. at the famous Up the Creek Comedy Club in Greenwich, South London. On the course, amongst other things, you will learn how to write original jokes and comedy routines, discover your unique comic persona, study performance skills such as stagecraft, presence, audience interaction, and microphone technique. You will also receive constant advice from myself and any guest tutors and have the opportunity to perform your very first gig. It's aimed at absolute beginners and people who are already performing stand-up comedy but are looking to get better. Or anyone who just fancies learning about stand-up comedy. So you don't have to want to be a comedian. But I warn you, you probably will by the end of the course. It takes place upstairs at Up the Creek, which is a fantastic space for a workshop with its own stage and lighting, and it's totally conducive to the studying, discussing, and performing of stand-up comedy. There's also usually a whole social element that develops in these workshops, which is totally out of my hands, where new friends and comedy comrades are made. It's always a very supportive culture. In fact, two of the students got pregnant at the same time at the previous workshop. So if you're trying for a baby, maybe this is the workshop for you. Our end-of-course show with invited audience of family and friends takes place downstairs on the main stage so the students get to experience the bright lights of performing at Up the Creek Comedy Club. And it's all professionally filmed and edited so you get a souvenir of your performance. Now, I've been performing at Up the Creek for 25 years. And it's about time they brought the next act on because I'm running out of material. Forgive me. I couldn't resist that. You will learn how to write better jokes than that. The point is I still get the same thrill every time I walk on that stage. My next course starts on May the 1st. For full details, please visit www.innocentacademy.com. Now, back to the podcast. What appeals to me about you, and this might be a long question, so stick with me, okay. is is the way that you generally, certainly when I've seen you, deal with mental health issues. Now, it's in an, an implicit way. Now, obviously, one of your fringe shows was called Off Meds, which yes. is fairly explicit. But whenever I've worked with you, I was impressed in how it, it just seems to be who you are rather than what you talk about. Now... We've been going through a period in stand-up comedy recently where there's been a trend in confessional comedy where an act might introduce themselves by saying, hi, my name is Sarah and I'm anorexic. Whereas I've always enjoyed the implicit nature of the way that you deal with your own mental health history and issues. What's your agenda in that respect about taking on that? And has that always been something that's been part of your comedy? Okay, so I would say I always want to talk about things that 
um, no one else was talking about or that seemed uh, maybe not no one else was talking about because you look at my act, there's a lot of hacky topics. It's not like it's. Um, but what I, I always want to talk about things that are very true to me. So I feel like I'm writing a joke that no one else would write. And um, but I started in like in just really hard gigs where there could be no self-indulgence, you know, like bars and like loud nightclubs and music open mics. So I always want to get to a punchline very quickly. So in terms of like more confessional, like, um, well, what would have been called like 10 years ago, one man show or something that where the joke is maybe not the, the first thing on the comedian's mind. I don't feel comfortable doing that. Because the whole, if I, it, I've tried to, but if I feel like I'm being confessional, the whole time I'm just thinking they're not laughing and I'm not being funny. So that's really my ethos is just like, I want to talk about what the, the realest, like fears and darkest, not even darkest, but just int see me, the, the things I think people will find most interesting about me. While also getting a laugh every hopefully like 10, 15 seconds. But it's but but so so through that economy that you've learned, as we all should in stand up yes. comedy, of course, you cut to the chase. But it's you don't say I've got this problem. Here's a joke about it. But it, it, you just seem like somebody. Whatever you're talking about, has obviously got something wrong with you. Yes, you know that's what I mean. It's not that's you don't have to spell it out. I don't really have to. Well, uh, my, my perspective, implicit, my comedic it's sub subtextual. It's just there about you. That's what I mean. There is a great quote, and I'm probably mangling it, and maybe misattributing it. I think it was John Cleese, and it was like he always said, "Your comic persona is the person you're most afraid of becoming." And really, the person I'm most afraid of becoming is like a raving madman, mm -hmm. because I could easily do that if I didn't kind of watch where I was going. So I really enjoy. Just kind of exaggerating that a bit on stage, you know, and that. Uh, I, I, do you think that that subject matter uh, has made you it, uh, the fact that you deal with such issues um, has made you relevant, more relevant in a period where people are discussing mental health openly and publicly, like you're a zeitgeist comedian. Oh, that's a good question. When I start, when I started talking about it, I felt really special because not many people were maybe ten years ago, and now everyone is to the point where sometimes you hear a comic being like, "I was diagnosed with ADHD," and it's like, "Were you?" Yeah, but you see, I send people to look at you. If I, you know, I, I modestly run a couple of workshops for new acts, and when they come out and want to go, "Hi, you know, I've got this problem," go, "No, no, 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 no," just be that person and let the audience realize that you have those issues. Go and watch Bobby Mayer. He'll show oh, you how to sweet. deal with mental health issues in a comedic way. So I, I really like that about you. But I think that does make you very modern and contemporary as well because you're part of that that modern trend of confessional and being honest about Yeah, honesty, about you know, all you can... But then I also now am kind of... And again, I don't even know if this my act currently reflects what I'm about to say, but I'm kind of sick of, like, mining my own pain now. Mm -hmm. Like, because after a while... It, you know those people where they're, you know, you'll see them perform for 20, 30 years and they're always in so much pain and you're like, why don't you just sort this out and be less funny? And like those people's fear is always, to, I don't want to be less funny. And it's like, well, be, you'd be nicer to be around. Like, just figure this out. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But you don't have to talk about mental health issues for it to be obviously. No, no, not at all. No, I don't think that, so. That's no. fantastic. You've worked with and supported some very high profile comedians like. Uh, the, the, the legendary Scottish act 
Jerry Sadovich, Doug Stanhope and Bill Burr. How did that come about? And what was that like to work with with famous comedians? Good question. And good comedians uh, as well. Uh, so Doug Stanhope, he was in uh, Montreal. I knew a man who was promoting the show because Doug usually works with independent promoters. And I just went to Montreal and I hung out for the whole weekend. And the promoter was kind of a bad comedian. So Doug thought I would just be a terrible comedian. Like he really had low expectations. But the oh, so promoter, he didn't come to you to no. say, I want this guy to support me. At this me. point, I just wanted to see Doug Stanhope. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then the promoter managed to get me 10 minutes. Doug's expectations were so low, I think, that I did pretty well. And he liked me. And then at some point, I opened for him in Toronto, and then again in London a couple times over the years. Oh, okay. So you opened for him in Toronto, and when he came to London, then he must have asked for you. Uh, yes. Okay. He was Well, he was very generous in that I had just moved here, and he let me open for him at Leicester Square mm. Theatre when he was doing a month run. And that kind of, I think, let people know who I was, was a bit quicker here. And that, that was very have, generous of yeah, him. Yeah, that must have opened up your audience as yeah, well. Yeah, it was, it was definitely Certainly. helpful. Um, Bill Burr, I knew the promoter and I asked, and I think it's such a, it's a thing where Bill Burr was so big that no one else thought to ask. Yeah. So yeah. just, I think well, I was the only one who asked. Sure. And then with Jerry, that was just a thing where my agent, Jerry was doing the full shows, but for some reason he didn't want to do the full shows anywhere they want. The, they wanted an opener. Someone who was doing it couldn't. I got in there. Jerry liked me, and then I did like twenty dates with Jerry. Wow. Jerry's a Jerry. Jerry's a tough guy to be around because mm. he is his stage persona. He's a very angry guy. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> but he is a great. He's a great comedian. Is, yeah. Uh, and um, what's he, his audience like? Man, the audience is different. Did you did you? Sense all different audiences, Bill Burr's audience, Jerry's audience. I would say with the, the thing is, Bill, with Bill and Doug and Jerry, I would say their audiences are all just like men who will laugh at anything. <laughs> so you're pretty, you're pretty free to just okay. say whatever you want. More recently, you appeared in Bobby and Harriet Get Married. Yes. Uh, Talk to me about that because I've got no idea what that was about and I haven't seen that. What was that experience like? So me How and did my that work? me and my wife Harriet Kemsley, also comedian, we we were planning our wedding, and uh, a friend of ours named Stu Richards, who's a writer producer, and uh, he had an idea to do a wedding mockumentary about us. So like a sitcom where we play ourselves planning our wedding, film it actual actual wedding. At first, I was like. Sure. I mean, who's going to let us have our own show? But we filmed this teaser. And I mean, with credit to Stu, he really like pushed it. And I was thinking, I mean, I don't know who's going to give us our own show. But sure, I'll film this teaser. And it worked. We had, me and Harriet had never really thought to work together before. But we had done a podcast with Stu. And he realized that when we fought, it was quite funny. So um, we film a teaser tape, pass it around. Nobody really wanted it. Then six weeks before our wedding, Vice saw the teaser tape. And we're like, okay, yeah, you can make the show. So within six weeks, we had to write a sitcom. And it's an improvised mockumentary, not not dissimilar to Curb Your Enthusiasm, heavily influenced by Curb Your Enthusiasm, <laughs> where we would... Um, so we'd write like a, an eight-page beat sheet where they had like every beat we wanted to hit. And then we'd improvise the dialogue and just run the scene like ten times. So we made uh, six episodes of that for Vice, which was a, a fledgling TV channel at the time. And uh, fledgling? Fledgling? Yeah. yeah. And uh, that came out. And uh, good reviews. The numbers were okay. Then Comedy Central bought it. And they aired it, which was great. 
and uh, yeah, it was great. So, how great much of it was fiction, do. and how much of it was oh, reality mean, and, and intrusive in that sense? Generally, it was all fiction. So it's a sitcom, but we definitely, like any sitcom about a comedian's life, we used our own lives, and we actually filmed at our real wedding, and and then, but at our wedding, we had to film scenes that would kind of tie up the narratives in the, in the show. And and was that a problem? Was was that it intrusive? was hard? Did that change it was very your stressful. wedding at the, experience at the time. At the time, you're talking about mental health. I was in the midst of a complete mental breakdown. So I'm in the midst of a complete mental breakdown while filming and writing a TV show and planning a wedding. And I, I'm adopted. I just met. I had just found my biological mother, and then she died before I met her, and it just like <laughs> collapsed my brain. Like I just couldn't function. So I, while I was having the most like career and life success, my mind was just collapsing while this was going on. And then two months after that, I was doing the, a whole Edinburgh Fringe run again. So it was the most stressful time in my life, which in hindsight, I very much appreciate. But at the time, I don't know if I necessarily enjoyed. Bobby and Harriet get married. But now Bobby and Harriet are having a baby. Are you going to have a TV program about that? <laughs> I mean, if someone would give us one, definitely. Yeah. We're definitely up for it. That'd be a good time. That's a fantastic thing. Yeah. But uh, having a baby is pretty exciting. Mm hmm and how old are you that? now? 35. I'm ready. Yeah, There's yeah. nothing. I have no urge to leave the house outside of work. You know, I feel quite settled in life. That's great. How old's Harriet? She's 34, I think. Okay. Yeah. That's it, really? I mean, you've answered all the questions I wanted. You've answered. But because you speak faster than most people, Yeah. Um, we've got it covered in, in shorter time. Can we still go with a 40-minute podcast? Uh, yeah, we're on 45 minutes. Um, I don't think there's going to be a lot of editing here. No, no. It, 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 I think I asked a question, and you've answered it beautifully, and then it's moved on to another question. I don't think you're going to have much work so with no this. material about fucking the wife. There's only going to be any fatherhood material. <laughs> oh, I'll definitely have jokes. I imagine it'll be my, you know, I've never had a kid. I, I assume the stereotypes are true, and it'll be my whole life. I'll definitely... Right now, I'm working on a bit about how I, I hope for triplets because I want to be a showbiz dad. And uh, I really just – I with triplets, you could work them 24 hours a day. <laughs> my, ki my kids have never been outside a, a studio. These kids are working. I'm just number one, two, and three. Three is sick of working nights. He asks to see the sun all the time. I say, no, three. You're better at night. Have you got a dog? We got a dog. Dog's hey. named Sonny. It's a, it's a Cavapoo. Very cute. Got him during lockdown. Pretty typical. That's a good child-friendly dog I think you've got there. Uh, I love this dog. He's uh, he's great. Did you have a dog back home? I had a dog when I was a kid, but then that dog got put down after like a oh, year. And then no, my parents no, had a dog. It's a then... sad thing for you to remember that, isn't it? I know, to it bring is that up, Even the fact that you're bringing that up. I know. I, I, I feel it. And then well. I had a dog when I was like 18, but then my mom got sick. My parents just gave it away without telling me. Wow. That's some tra two tragic I dumpsters. Know, but now I've got a dog. You can make up for that. Now I've got a dog, and I'm not going to give it away without <laughs> telling my kid. I think with, yeah, when people have had a dog as a child, they're dog people forever. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. you'd always want a dog. You have a dog, Jeff. I've always, always had dogs. What yeah. kind of dog you got? Well, at the moment, I've got a Whippet Cross Greyhound. Which oh, they, those are beautiful. They oh. call them long dogs. But they can't they? lay on cold ground, right? A Whippet. Uh, uh, well, they can't sort of sit down as other dogs. They can't, you know, like a dog sits down and yes. they can't do that because their body isn't that shape. They have to sit down in odd alien type ways. <laughs> they're and they're very bony and they've got uh, very, very, very thin fur. So, uh, 
couldn't papers you get, in for aerodynamic you fatten reasons. up a whippet? You can, but they look fat. <laughs> hey, look, because you can't fan up their legs. You know, you can fan up their stomach. Yeah. yeah but, uh, yeah. Yeah, so they're the sort of dogs I'm into. I like those skinny, long-nosed dogs, Yeah, I guess. Do you know. let them lick your face? Oh, yeah. Harriet hates it. I will let my uh, dog lick my face. I will lay on the ground with sleep, the dog. I let it sleep in the bed, any yes, of that stuff. I love it. Yeah, there's a cut-off point for some people with dogs, isn't there? Yeah. Face licking is one of those things. Not for oh, no, me. I have a cut-off point, and it's... And, uh, it's I don't let them lick or eat from the same cup or or, or mug. That Agreed. I'm I don't from. do that either. That's, That's my cutoff point. Yeah. You know, I won't let a dog come and drink the, what's, <laughs> the, what's left of my tea in my cup. Yeah, I've got my limits. I've yeah. got my limits. Now, now, Bobby, this is something I didn't know about. You, you also achieved some some level of notoriety with your online relationship with Katie Hopkins. I, I did. So what was that all uh, about? Can you I talk me through I that? I trolled Katie Hopkins. So she, there's a point where I don't even remember what network it is, like the W Network. Some obscure network gave her a TV show, which I thought was like, I was like, yuck. Like, she's a troll, and she's a horrible person. Um... Which is not like a controversial opinion. Everyone hates Kitty Hopkins now. But at the time, she was kind of like people were like giving her a voice, which I thought this is weird. And they, the show was offering comedians piles of money to go on this show. I can't remember the numbers, but it was like thousands. So I thought, well, I, I want to do something with this. What if I went on the show and then gave the money to everyone she hates? Like, I thought that'd be a fun video that and it was before everyone had a viral mm -hmm. video you know it was like five six years. so i thought that would be a fun video to make so i uh, i went in to katie hopkins I, I i got my agent to email the booker they booked me i was like this is great this is great so i get there and um, i'm in makeup and i have my eyes closed and uh i feel arms just wrap around me when my eyes are closed and wet hair rubbing my neck and i open my eyes and Katie Hopkins has just <laughs> got out of the shower and she's just wearing a robe oh, no. and she hugs me and she said, are you going to be funny for me today, Bobby? <laughs> and I was just, I kind of froze in like a, like, I was just, I'm not saying Katie Hopkins, it was, you know, it was on the right side of weird, but it was still weird, but I'm whatever. But then, um, I just said, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, it's not like I, I, like, I hate this woman, but when someone's, in front of you with wet hair and a robe and being quite nice to you. It's very hard to just say, fuck you, yeah, lady. Yeah. So I just held it in. So they, it they'd in. seen a show reel of you, had they? I guess, I guess, yeah. I don't think there was that much competition. Nobody wanted to be on a show. And uh, so I got out there, and then very quickly, it was just me being like, you're a horrible person. Like, I just couldn't. I lost my comedic persona completely because I hate this woman. Like, I just loathe her so much it was gone. At one point, her co-host, Mark Dolan, who at the time before that, Mark Dolan had just been like a nice guy who was like probably a secret Tory, but whatever. I don't care. And uh, uh, then he was co-hosting Katie Hopkins. Show. Now he's like on talk radio, cutting up masks and throwing them at the camera. <laughs> so at one point, Mark Dolan, uh, he held Katie Hopkins hand after she said something disgusting and said, oh, you are. I love you, Katie. And then right, and then he switched to me and said, Bobby, you're a really respected comedian. And I said, well, you used to be until you did this. <laughs> and he, he was very angry. He was so angry. And they still the aired that. Yeah, yeah, right, I, yeah, I never watched it, so I don't know if they aired that part. But then after that, so it, it was like a terrible recording. I mean, I was probably cut out of most of it. I never watched it. But 
what I did do is I took the few thousand pounds they gave me and I made a video where I gave it to like a bunch of trans ladies and a bunch of like just a I can't remember old people like she was horrible There's so many groups at that point but it was kind of um you could remember them all because she was in the news so much and she was quite a a big figure so I just gave money to everyone she hated on video which was the fee That's from the a show great idea and what's happened to her now uh, I, I don't know. She disappeared. She's gone, You're probably part of her demise. I hope so. Well, I heard a story secondhand, so I don't know if this is true, but there was a story about someone who worked at the network, and this is... who showed a slideshow where they showed my video, and my video had gotten more viewers than her show, Fantastic. and that felt great. So what's coming up next? Next? Um, because I, we've been, there's been no Fringe Festival for a while. I'm going to the you, Fringe. You are still going. I'm going to do five days there. Seems like okay. tickets are moving quickly. New show or, or club? Or like a work in progress stuff? show. Okay. I mean, it's um, it'll be... Yeah, I, a lot of the material I had died because it just wasn't relevant after the pandemic. So just writing new stuff. So you're going to the Fringe. What about TV and these T sort of old projects you seem to be getting involved TV, in? TV, I'm doing a show. I'm do, uh, I don't know why I lie. I'm doing the second season of a show, which was a really good time, called Killer Camp. It's a... Uh, it's a reality show I host, and uh, it's a murder mystery reality show. So it's a bunch of early 20s reality show people in a forest, like a camp. And I play camp counselor Bobby. And every episode, the, one of them is the killer. So every episode, one of the campers gets killed off. And if the innocent campers figure out who the killer is, they get a pot of money. And if the killer remains hidden, the killer gets a pot of money. So it's like this competition slash like murder mystery slash big brother kind of show. And you've done one series of We've that? We've done one series okay. and we just filmed the second series. And um, uh, this network in America called the CW, they aired the British the first season and they liked it so much. They've now commissioned us for the second season. So it's going to come out in October, October Fantastic. 8th, I believe, on the CW in America. Fantastic. And it will come out here, but I don't know exactly when. And, and what, what about the future in terms of your comedy agenda? What, what, what sort of topics are you looking to take on I don't know about with the work in progress? Is there a change in direction? Or, or I don't know about topics. Topics, I find, I, like I talk about like 40 different topics in one hour. I kind of jump, you know, my jokes are quite short and then I'll move on to something else. But in terms of just style, I just like, I, I don't know. A couple of years ago, I just lost the ability to talk about sex on stage. Like, I just, the idea of it feels disgusting. I think it's just because I'm married and, like, my sex life now is so, you know, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not, comp it's just so, like, with my wife. So it's like, why am I going to talk about, like, whenever someone's like, like, it's fine, but whenever someone's like, oh, I was fucking my wife, I'm like, I mean, I know your wife. Why does she like you talking about how you fuck her? That seems, but I don't, I don't, I never had that kind of shame before, but now I kind of do around that. So I, I, I don't talk about sex that much. I just try to, I don't know, just try to write jokes that I don't think okay. other people are writing. But do you think your style is changing? I, do I, you have an agenda where you're looking to, um, to I guess, change your style? You know, if I wrote now the jokes I wrote 10 years ago, mm -hmm. they'd probably be quite sure. boring because everyone, you know, that those kind of jokes have been done. So you know, I'm always just trying to push myself in a direction of writing a, a joke that I necessarily haven't heard from someone else. Mm -hmm. That's it, really. Just an original take on maybe a common topic. Of course. Bobby Mayer, thank you for coming into the Thank you Smart for having Casual me, Jack. Studio. It's been a pleasure. I'm a massive fan. I'm a massive fan thank of you. you. Bless you. We'll Bless do a you. podcast where I talk about how great Bless you are next time. <laughs> this podcast was hosted by me, Jeff Innocent. It was produced and edited by Sam B.
Sophie Cloney. Don't forget to like and subscribe and follow me on social media at Jeff Innocent Official on Instagram and Innocent Jeff on Twitter. See you next time for another episode of Smart Casual.